Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. Go to Primalosophy.com for one-on-one wellness coaching. My guest on the podcast today is the founder and CEO of the Practicing Mind Institute, author of Fully Engaged and the best-selling book, The Practicing Mind, and expert in present moment functioning, Thomas Sterner. In this episode, we get to know Thomas and his passion for pianos and flying. We talk about the art of practicing, making peace with incompleteness, and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Thomas as much as I did. And if you want to support the show, you can do so by clicking subscribe, clicking some stars, and sharing with your friends. Enjoy the episode. In the practicing mind, we learned that all of life is practice in one form or another. And before we got started, you said something that I like. You said everything is quite simple, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, that's right. And I think the first thing to realize is that absolutely everything we do in life is a skill. Everything. And, you know, we might not think of it like that. You know, we can easily say, well, playing the piano is a skill. Golf is a skill. Uh, but in reality, walking was a skill. It was a skill you had to learn at one time, feeding yourself, buttoning your shirt. But then it goes past that. Being in a relationship, learning to um, console somebody who has a terminal illness, you dealing with a love pers- a person you love that has a, a terminal illness, running a company, getting through a job interview, interviewing somebody. It doesn't matter what it is. Everything you start from a place of no skill and then through this deliberate, um, well, it should be, good practice is a deliberate repetition of a specific task with a very conscious intention of accomplishing something. When you do that over and over again and you learn to do that without judging your progress, then you begin to practice effectively uh, and efficiently and your productivity goes way up and your experience and interpretation of your experience of learning a new skill becomes, as I said uh, earlier, it becomes like a respite. You know, I when I was learning uh, to play golf and I and I did, you know, I was able to progress in golf very quickly according to the pros that I was studying under. But it wasn't because I was some athletic prodigy because I never was. But it was because of the way my mind worked and how I, I approached practicing. But I looked forward to practicing because when I did practice, I completely one of the things I did was I didn't a lot of my practice was without a ball. And the reason is because when you put a ball down and you hit it off a mat, you get very distracted by the result of the golf swing. Mm-hmm. And so if you stand there at the mat and you say, you know what, I'm going to practice where my hands are at the top of the backswing. And, and I would always divide things down into very small pieces. And this is very important when you're learning a skill is to break things down in small pieces. And work on them one at a time, and then you string them together. But the brain learns very quickly when you ask it to do very little task, and then you repeat it, it just it just sets it into the subconscious. But if you try to learn too much in one pass, then you overload the brain and you become frustrated, and it's very inefficient. So, you know, what I found in practicing golf was that if I said, okay, well, I'm going to do 10 swings, and I'm only going to pay attention to where my hands are at the top. Well, if I hit a ball in that swing and the ball went off to the right and it ended up being a lousy ball flight, I found that I was immediately pulled away from where my hands were at the top and I would start, I wonder why that happened. Mm -hmm. Let me see if I can fix that. And then I would, I would drop away from my intention, what my, my conscious intention was, which was to learn, be in the process of learning a good golf swing. And I would try to fix what happened on that last swing, which was only the result of me not being fully present in the whole golf swing, which wasn't what I was trying to do at that particular time. So this is, I find, you know, I think what's very important when we're learning any skill 
is to realize that we will always be up against the threshold of our skill level. So what I mean by that is when you, and I, this is the example that I give, you know, many times, if you, let's just say you want to learn how to play the piano and you show up at your first lesson and the, the piano instructor says, okay, this is what the note G looks like on the paper. It's on this staff line here. Um, now this is where the note is on the keyboard and this is the finger that presses it. At that moment in time, you're at the beginning of this skill learning and you're overwhelmed you're it's a and so what do you experience inside well you experience what we call struggle struggle is just a, a label for a feeling that we experience inside the problem is when we call it struggle then we we immediately have this bad feeling about it who wants to struggle nobody wants to struggle but the feeling is neither good or bad it's just a feeling that's letting you know that you are up against a personal threshold this is not something that you have mastered yet and you're in the process of mastering it and, and of learning it now if you jump ahead two years from now you're way past that you've mastered that part of the skill but what are you doing now you're working on a Mozart piece. And where are you with that? Well, you're up against your threshold because you can't play that piece. And right. so now if you internalize, if you, if you look at yourself inside, what does it feel like? It feels the same as it did on the very first day that you started learning how to play the piano. It's that same feeling. Why? Because you're up against your threshold. And it's very easy to interpret that as you're not moving forward and feel like, you know what, I'm, I'm just not getting any better. But you're not looking at the wake behind the boat. You know, what you're not seeing is everything that you can do effortlessly now that you couldn't do. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the reasons why it's very important and very useful to have a coach or a mentor, you know, whatever you want to call it. Because when I work with people, one of the things that you have to work on is getting them to see the wake behind the boat and getting them to see that, you know, they, they will feel like three weeks, four weeks, whatever into your sessions. They don't know. They may or may not notice when you bring it back to their attention, they really see where they were on the very first session. And they're, they're astounded by how far they've come in just a couple of weeks. So I think it's very important that when people begin a new skill and they realize that, look, we're on this, this linear line of, and um, we start no skill, and now we're on this process in a process of, of mastery, and we call that line learning. And you know, so the question is, how do you interpret the experience of learning? You can interpret it as joyful and peaceful and, a, and a, an escape, or you can you can be attached to this to the goal, whatever the goal is, and say this is a nuisance and a tortuous time I have to go through so I can get to this point out here where I have, quote, mastered this skill. Right, and that that attachment is more than just to the goal. It's also to comfort. That like that threshold that you mentioned, it's uncomfortable. It's it's a it's a sign of it that we're hitting a growth spurt, and growth spurts are uncomfortable. That's right. And again, I like I really like to point out that the word uncomfortable is a label that we put on stuff. It's a feeling. We're still talking about uncomfortable is a feeling that we have. And when you know, I, I noticed this. Um, I'm very aware. Uh, I'm very much a noticer. This is what I, one of the things that I teach people is you have to be separate from your thoughts. You know, there's a big difference between noticing you're having an uncomfortable thought and being in the uncomfortableness of the emotional content of the thought. They're two different places. When you are noticing that you're having an uncomfortable thought, then you have the privilege of choice. Now you can make choices and uh, conscious decisions that you can't make when you're in the uncomfortable thought emotion. And that's because 
it's a difference in, in you know, they say, well, you know, um, most of us, for the most part, we spend 90 to 95 percent of our day living programs that we have installed in our subconscious. Our subconscious is just, you know, going on and our mind is observing what's going on around us. And it has an answer on the hard drive to every incident that happens. And it just goes and gets it and then fires it off. And then we sit there like a puppet experiencing the emotional content of that reaction. There's only about 5% where we're really conscious choice making. And that's where, you know, I did a, a, a talk that was called 5% thinking. And it was, you know, that what that's what we want to do. We want to expand that 5% thinking so we're more conscious and we can say what, you know, what you just said, it's, uh, this is growth is uncomfortable. Oh, I'm having an uncomfortable feeling that, that uh, you know, I'm really not uncomfortable. I'm having the feeling. My mind is producing a thought which creates the chemical reaction that gets injected into my blood chemistry that creates this emotion of uncomfortable. That happens when I'm in a situation that is unfamiliar or I'm in a process of learning. It's not necessarily a bad thing. And that's why I say interpretation creates your experience of the situation. You know, you can, different people interpret different situations differently. Like some people, you get them, tell them to stand up in front of a room full of people and talk, and it's a terrible, you know, fearful experience. Somebody else just can't wait to get out on the stage. The, the, the talk is just the talk. It's just how you interpret the opportunity and the situation. Absolutely. And it, it's one thing to notice, but also as soon as we wake up every day, our brain which is one of the greatest storytellers, starts telling us a story that we're going to play over and over again, and we fall into that pattern. Once we wake up, not only do we have to recognize that, every new day we are, we are two strangers meeting, and then we have to practice staying awake. And that's a really good way of putting it. It's the difference between being the observer you know, or the noticer. You know, there's different terms that have been given to it, and um, being the ego. You know, the ego is just a puppet that responds to whatever it, it, it's driven by fear. Um, and, you know, but who we really are uh, is the, the part of us that's the observer. And, you know, when people learn to live more in the observer state, that life calms down and they, uh, you know, they become um, – they create their emotions. You know, they're like one of the things that they're they're learning now is that the mind, the brain is like the electricity. It creates the intention and then the heart creates the emotional content. The emotional content is what they would say is the magnet. And this is how manifestation and the secret and all this stuff is uh, the law of attraction. This is what they're talking about with this. So they can measure all this stuff. They can measure the electrical field outside of your body that is produced by the heart. And so that the thing is, is that, you know, when you internally get to a point where you're internally independent, what you're feeling internally is independent from what is going on outside of you. That's when you have real power. And what's interesting to me is that I was in, in a, uh, at an event one time uh, and uh, uh, having a conversation with somebody and the guy, this guy came up to me and he said, um, you know, I don't agree with your modality, he said, uh, you know, because there's things that happen to people and they have absolutely no control over it. And, you know, it wasn't a place for the discussion. But what I wanted to say is, no, you don't have any control over it. That doesn't mean that there's no one in the world who who, who does have control over situations. Uh, you know, I've been in some very, very difficult situations. And yet people tell me I'm very flatlined in those situations. Well, it's not because I'm some advanced being. It's because I've worked at this stuff for years. 
And I can say firsthand that it has gotten me through some very difficult situations. And I've been in situations where everybody was coming apart. And for me, it was just, let's all just, you know, I, I, what I felt internally was just a calmness. Um, and it's a perspective and that anyone can accomplish, but it does take an intentional effort and a commitment and, uh, and repetition of, <laughs> ironically, you have to be in the, the uncomfortable situations to get comfortable in them. I mean, that's, you know, if you want to play, if you want to be good at golf in the rain, it's got to be raining. So, uh, you know, you can't go out on a sunny evening and practice hitting good shots in the rain. So I tend to notice when I'm feeling this struggle, my interpretation of that situation is the reason I'm feeling this feeling is because I'm not really good at dealing with this situation. So, oh, goody, it's a chance for me to execute some mechanics here. Let me see how I do. But then I don't judge my progress. You know, like I just I just say, look, here's the opportunity, you know, to to do this. Just like if I'm out on the golf course and the ball's behind a tree, I've you know, I've got an opportunity to try to get the ball around the tree to wherever I want. If I don't do, you know, all I can do is try and use, utilize what I have learned and what I have practiced. If it doesn't work, I use that as a, a data gathering event and I don't judge it. And then I just move on and, and apply that to the, you know, to the hard drive and say, okay, next time I know what, what does work and what doesn't work. Yeah, it really all comes down to that dichotomy of control and only concerning ourselves with our actions and attitude. It's like that when that guy came up to you, a lot of things that happen to us are, external events that are outside of our control. We recognize that. Great. But if I'm golfing, I'm going to focus on the process and doing my best. Yes. And I, what I tell people is that, look, you, you are not in control of what happens outside of you and what other people do, what people say to you, how they act, what is going on outside of you. But you always have the opportunity to be in control of how you process it. You always have that. You always have choices. That doesn't mean that they're easy. You know, this is this is, you know, where, you know, people we, we want easy, you know, being able to be in control when somebody's in your face or you're in a nervous situation or you just found out that someone that you love has cancer. I'm not saying that that's an easy place to be in. But can you know that doesn't but I'm all but I am saying is you don't have to surrender all your self-control to that circumstance. You can learn to be in control. And I you know, I think that if you were to ask people um, if you could be any person you want, would you like would just think of the worst situation you can think of if you could handle that situation any way that you want? What would that be? Would it be uh, to to not allow that situation to impact your inner peace, to allow you to be calm? Because when you're calm and in, at peace inside, you make better decisions. You're much more help to the people around you, helping them cope. Or mm -hmm. would you would you know would you rather just lose control? Like I think pretty much everyone would say, well, I would rather always be in control, or at least be able to make the choice to be in control. I think people confuse the fact that when you say that, they go, well, then. You know, you don't really get happy about stuff. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that, um, you know, one of the things that they're talking about now in neuroscience is that, you know, we can choose the emotions that we experience. So if I can, if I can choose to have positive emotions that are nourishing to me and allow me to help other people in difficult times, I would. That's the choice that I that I would make, and that's what I, that's the skill that I want to develop. It's not about uh, you know, being uh, emotionally dead. This is the whole, what would the sage do looking over your shoulder? The sage would be fully engaged. The, absolutely. You know, there's a story that, um, 
um, Wayne Dyer told one time, I remember, where it was a woman who had um, uh, had health problems and she was talking um, to this yogi. And there's actually, um, you know, there was two parts to this. And in the one thing, she was telling him all the problems she had. And, and he didn't seem to be getting upset about it. And she got upset with him. And she said, um, you know, doesn't, um, doesn't anything ever go wrong for you? And he said, ma'am, in my world, nothing ever goes wrong. And he said, in your world, he said, your body has problems, but you don't have problems. And this was something that he, it was a point that he was trying to, you know, to make to her. And he said, um, the other thing that he said is, um, you know, like she said, well, don't you worry about things? And he said, I don't worry about the things that I can't control because I can't control them. And I don't worry about the things that I can control because I have control of them. And that pretty much covers everything. Quite simple. Right. Again, that's what I was saying in the beginning. It's simple. But this is where, you know, we need because the media and our the, the culture that we live in steals this from us all the time. It's like, you know, I said in the practicing mind, and I lost my mother in 2000 to cancer. And when she was was dealing with that, her and I were very close and we were talking about a lot of this stuff. And I was trying to help her deal internally with, you know, some of the things that uh, I wouldn't say she was fearful of, but she was just trying to deal with the fact that she was terminal. And um, she said to me, she was reading this stuff and contemplating this stuff. And she said, you know, Tom, you have to work at this stuff every day because when you work at it every day, it's always in front of you. She said, if you stop, she said, the nature of the world steals it away from you and you begin to drop into old behaviors of thought. And I'm basically paraphrasing the conversation, but you know, that's what she said. It was that like, you know, you really, you have to remind yourself of this all the time because it's really easy to read a book and get all charged up uh, but but staying committed and constantly feeding yourself this this information and this way of thinking so that you can change thought behaviors that you have installed in your subconscious over millions and millions of rep repetitions throughout your life. That takes commitment, effort, and a willingness to say, you know what, these things didn't get into my head in three weeks, so it's going to take time for me to change them. And the best time for me to change them is when it's the hardest, <laughs> because once again, you know, it's raining. Oh, when you look out the window and it's raining, like, where's my clubs? I'm going out and hit some shots, you know, like, um, and then when you can do that, you know, then you can interpret the situation. It's amazing when you interpret a situation as a, that I, I interpret difficult situations now that I used to dread, you know, I would just be to totally wrapped up in the emotional content of the situation. Now, because I'm so separate from the situation, I think to myself, oh, this is when the fun starts. I, I wouldn't be feeling this way if I was good at this. So here's an, I want to be good at this. You know, I want to be good at every situation that comes my way. I want to be the choice maker. I want to choose how I'm, how I'm going to feel in a situation. I don't want to be a puppet of the situation. So because of that, when I get a situation where I feel like, you know, I'm not feeling like I'm totally in control here. Oh, that means I got an opportunity to work on this. So what, what are my resources? What do I know? What kind of a plan can I come up with to see if I can weather this situation and make it more comfortable? I can get rid of that feeling and I can feel more balanced inside. And so for me, again, it, it, I interpret it differently than I did 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it may be a simple practice, but it's still a practice that takes discipline. 
and we accept that in other things in our life, like going to the gym. We know that we're going to have to keep going to the gym in order to maintain a certain level of fitness. But when it comes to meditation and mindfulness and present moment functioning, like you like to say, we think it's going to be something that's achievable. And once we got it, we got it for good. That's right. And you bring up a very good uh, analogy there because I tell people this stuff is like exercising. You never get to a place in your life where you're done exercising. You know, you don't get to a place where you go, well, now I'm fit, so I don't have to exercise for the rest of my life. It's a part of a daily routine which brings physical and mental health. And this stuff is also a part of brings mental and emotional health. And it's something that needs to just be part of our routine. And that's something that once you accept that, then you don't look at it. It's a, you know, you 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 accept a lot of things. You know, like you have to eat, you have to brush your teeth. People don't go, well, I don't feel, I don't like brushing my teeth, so I'm just going to stop brushing them. You know, there's a consequence for that. So, you know, there's a consequence for not working with this. And you know, Nick, the 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 data is out there. We are we're losing our short-term memory. We're losing our ability to focus on demand. Uh, we're losing our patience. You know, our um, uh, you know, our ability to just sit down and read a book, you know, the people, it, it's difficult for people to sit still, you know, for 15, 20 minutes. They have this, they're so, and you, it's going to be even worse for the the, uh, the millennials and the generations that are being raised with a cell phone in front of their face. We're so used to a distraction and constant brain activity uh, that when you take it away, um, your brain doesn't know what to do. It's like your brain is so ramped up and is moving so quickly and that and the brain is getting better at doing that. That's the reason why you can hand a young person a brand new phone they've never seen before and it takes them about 15 minutes to figure the whole thing out. You hand that to somebody like um, in their 70s and they're, they can't do it. You know, they, just, they don't get the technology and they can't do it even if you show them over and over and over again. You know, I mean, I've, I've had elderly people where I've, I can't get them to learn how to cut and paste something in a Word document, you know, like as many times as I show them. It's just technology that's beyond them. Now, you know, my generation was coming up when the computer technology was, was coming in. So I get it, you know, but it takes me longer to get it. And, and ironically, my nephew is... Um, is in his 30s, his late 30s, and he was having a conversation with my father about this exact um, subject. And he said to my father, his grandfather, he said, you know, just like you think this is so easy for me, I look at these kids that are younger than me that are in their 20s and in their teens. He goes, and they're, the difference between me with this technology and them is the same as between me and you. It's, they're just way ahead of me with this stuff. So um, this is happening. Our brains are moving faster and faster, but we're losing the ability to reel our, our brain in and say, OK, I want you to focus on this right now. We, you know, we can't do that. And uh, it's causing all these problems. Our attention span sucks. We're constantly stimulated and distracted. So how can we use what you call thought awareness training to develop a more present moment awareness and functioning? And, and why do we need that? Well, we need it for the reasons that we've just talked. I mean, you can't do anything that we're going to talk about that we're talking about here or that you're talking about with anybody else on any one of these shows unless we can learn to be separate from our thoughts, you know, because otherwise we're just a puppet of our thoughts, as we've said. So how do you do that? Well, you need to become aware. You know, people need to realize that their mind produces thoughts without their permission. And it and even when they direct their mind to do something or to not do something, it will continue to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I have found with um, 
like high school kids, you know, I've done things with high school kids who, you know, who their, their minds are so ramped up and I'll, I'll do like a, a in one session, I took a bunch of high school kids and I said, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to sit still, close our eyes and we're just going to sit for two minutes and I want you to stop thinking. Well, obviously I knew they couldn't do it, but they didn't know they couldn't do it. And so two minutes went by. Then I, I said, okay. And this was an epiphany for these kids. It was like, oh my gosh, I couldn't, I just kept trying to not think, but I couldn't not think. And they, um, it was the first time in their life that they realized, um, that they were not in control. And I said to them, if you can't stop your mind from thinking who's really in control during the day, it's not you. So don't you want to be in control? And you can't be in control if you're if you're just running around with your mind doing whatever it's doing it. And your mind is a it's a problem solving machine. And it's very good at it. That's the reason we, you know, we have nice houses and air conditioning and beautiful cars and all this other stuff. It's a problem solver. But if you don't give it a problem to solve, it's going to go running out and look for a bone to chew on. And and as we said earlier, you know, what's the statistics? You know, we have uh, 60 some thousand thoughts a day and um, 90 some percent of them are the same thoughts we had the day before. And it's really just it gets down to our subconscious mind is is running the show because we are operating in a fight or flight mode all the time, which is, a, is which is another subject. But getting back to the thought awareness training, it's really very simple. Uh, you can sit in a chair uh, I like I always start people off with 10 minutes a day uh, because it needs to be something that they can actually do. You don't start off with a half an hour because a lot of people, even though they should be able to find a half an hour on their schedule, they won't. So anybody can come up with 10 minutes a day and you sit and there's two there's two processes you can use. One would be a mantra based uh, or you can call it a phrase. Uh, I like to see a phrase. It's a couple of words. You know, I am at peace. I am still you don't say it out loud. You just hear it in your head. You know, you basically you're thinking it. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, what you're doing is giving your mind, you're basically saying, don't look, instead of having a hundred thoughts, just think of this one thing. Right. I, was, I wanted to ask you about that. The importance of mantras, which I don't include in my practice, but is the, is the effectiveness of that? Does that come from the fact that multitasking isn't a real thing and we can only single task? Yes. Yes, and our mind, I, particularly for Western people, they um, if you give them just one thing to do, at least they feel like they're doing something as opposed to just observing their breath, which is you know is is another is the other thing that I would say. And the reason I do that is because um, I feel like uh, th there's all kinds of uses and benefits of guided meditations, but the problem with the guided meditation in terms of this particular thing here is that it's got it's talking to us. And telling and it's, it's giving us instructions, and in order to do that, we have to be thinking. And what we we want to do is stop the mind from thinking, mm -hmm. and really become aware of what the mind is thinking when we're asking it to not think. And you know, of course, what we find is that within a few seconds it runs off. And I and so back to your um, your the mantra phrase based. I just find that for some people, a phrase based thing there they can that feels more comfortable to them than just sitting there and watching their breath. So uh, they both do the same thing. As far as I'm concerned, they're really just giving your mind either one task to do. And you're right. There is no such thing as, as multitasking. They call it switch tasking. And the mind can only do one thing at, at once. But what happens is, is that the mind does so many things quickly that uh, we feel like it's doing multiple things at one time. And, you know, there's that test that, um, uh, Dave Crenshaw's book, The Myth of Multitasking, you know, he talks about in there where 
you know, if you give somebody a, a piece of paper and you tell them to write, multitasking is worse than a lie. And then as you write that, you go, you know, M, you write the letter M and underneath of it, you write the number one and then you write U and then two and then L and then three. And you go all the way across the page writing the sentence letter by letter and number by number. And then you tell the person, okay, now write multitasking is worse than lie and write one, two, three, four, five, six, eight until you have the same number. It's, it's about 33 letters. Um, what you find is that it takes the brain about 35 to 40% uh, of the time to just write it across as it does to do the M1, U, U2. And that's because the brain is switch tasking. When it does it, it's thinking letters, thinking numbers, thinking letters, thinking numbers. Now, most people would look at that and think, but I'm not multitasking there. But yes, you, the, as far as the brain is concerned, you are multitasking. So um, so there's a there's t tons of data out there that multitasking is it doesn't exist and what we think is multitasking is so counterproductive. So going back to the the thought awareness training, you know, you do this and here's you know this is the key thing to remember in this Nick. You know, you first of all you don't judge your progress. I'm always amused when people say I, I'm bad at meditating <laughs> because there's no you know, there's, bad. there is no bad meditating. You know, there, there, it's not. Um, some days your mind is very active and it's going to want to run off a lot. And other days it depends on what's going on in your life. And other days your mind will be relatively calm and uh, and you won't feel like you're fighting with it so much. But the real juice in this process, so you sit and you either watch your body breathe, you don't try to control it, you just watch it breathe, or you say your simple phrase over and over again for 10 minutes. Um, the real juice in it and the value is when your mind runs off and initially you won't notice it, you'll just follow it because that's what you do all day long. Uh, when you notice it and you call it back to task and it's in that those few microseconds that everything happens because in those few microseconds when you notice you become the noticer mm -hmm. you become the watcher of the mind not the mind because they're two separate things and when you notice it and you pull it back your observer orient you become more anchored to the observer uh, and your willpower strengthens and that goes into everything you're doing. So like, you know, when I say, you know, I notice I'm having this feeling of struggling, it's because I'm noticing that my mind has has seen a situation, it's gone to my subconscious, gotten a response that I've installed over my lifetime and is playing it off the hard drive. I've noticed that. And now I'm making a decision that this is what I'm going to do in this situation, not what the former program is saying I should do. You can't do that unless you get separate from the circumstance. And that's what meditation does. And every time you pull your mind back, your willpower strengthens. So because when you are in a situation like that and your mind uh, fires off this response, there's a tremendous pull because it's a habit. There's a tremendous pull to repeat this habitual behavior that you have repeated unconsciously over and over and over again. So the pull is there and it's pulling you and you have to have this willpower to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I've been down that road. I'm at a fork in the road. I know where that road takes me and how it makes me feel. I'm not going down that road. I'm going down this road because I have made a choice when I'm not in this situation, that this is the path I want to take when this situation occurs. So you can't do that without this willpower and this awareness. And that's what just 10 minutes of thought awareness training does for you a day. And, and what I find with people is 
generally they start out at 10 minutes and then they start doing 10 minutes here and 10 minutes there and 10 minutes there. And they may end up doing a half an hour um, half an hour during the day. They just do it at different times. And every time you do it, every repetition of you catching your mind is like a repetition of the gym. Uh, it's all good. You know, so when, I'm, I just think it's laughable when people say, I'm constantly chasing my mind. And my response is, well, if you're constantly chasing your mind, it means you're constantly noticing your mind is running off and you're pulling it back. That's great. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's not a bad meditation. If you were having a what you would call a bad meditation, which is not a bad meditation, your mind would run off and you would be engaged in what your mind is doing for five minutes and not even notice it. Yeah. Coming back to the now is the ultimate comeback. And I don't, right. I don't necessarily have a day-to-day -day meditation practice, but for me, I, I think I get those benefits from reading because as soon as my mind starts to wonder and I come back to the page, you know, I, I feel like I'm getting the same benefits and I'm noticing how often my mind drifts. Well, that's being the observer, and that is your meditation. There's, you know, really anything can be your meditation. The, um, you know, working on something or working on a situation. This situation is stressing me out. Oh, I just noticed I'm having a stressful thought. That I'm pulling my mind back to where I want it to be. That's no different than being in a meditation. You're noticing that your mind is running off, and you're telling your mind, "I want you to follow your my breath. I want you to say this phrase." Oh, my mind isn't doing that. It's doing this thing over here. It it wants to do, and I'm telling it not to do that. I'm going to pull it back and do this. Well, what's the difference between that and you entering a stressful situation and saying to yourself, because you're the observer, oh, you know, especially like, oh, I got a, I got a conversation I have to have that's really going to be difficult. Um, so when I go into that conversation, this is how I want to feel. This is how I want to answer these questions. And you get in that conversation, then here comes the, the, um, the behavioral response, the nervousness and everything. Oh, this is what I've learned. This is how my, so I've told my subconscious when I get in this situation, this is the stuff to go get off the hard drive. This is how I want you to make me feel. You know, you notice that. And when I say you notice it, that's because you're the observer. You're not in the emotion. And so then you say, okay, now uh, here it comes. I expected it to come that whole time when you have that perspective. You're not in it. You're just watching it happen. And then you go, okay, so now that that is happening, that's my trigger. Now I'm going to do this instead. And when you can say that, it's a meditation because you're watching your mind telling you it's going to do this. And you're telling it, no, I've already decided this is what we're going to do. And we're going to do this now. And here's my opportunity to practice this. Isn't this great? Yeah. It, it, I like what you said about there's no one size fits all meditation practice. Because when you're at the gym, the best exercise routine for you is going to be the one that you consistently do and that you enjoy. The best meditation practice for you is going to be the one that you enjoy and that brings you peace of mind. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that... Um, you know, this stuff, I think that what we're finding is that, you know, when you look at where you are in your life and how you're feeling inside, I think a lot of people, you know, they have this anxiety that's running in the background. And if you really want to get past that, you need to, you can, you can transmute that into an opportunity. Uh, and, and it's, it may be hard to believe, but it can turn into something that I won't say you look forward to it. But you look at you interpret it completely different uh, than this this feeling of being overwhelmed. Yeah, and you should look forward to the practice itself. It should be free flowing, not stressful. Absolutely, and it's also where we get into trouble is we judge our we judge our results, you know. And uh, you know that this is a story I I've told many many times. I had a woman call me one time and. <clears throat> for coaching. And when we had the first meeting, she said, uh, I said, you know, so what are, tell me what you're struggling with. 
And she said, well, I quit my corporate job six months ago because I wanted to become a visual artist. And I said, oh, okay. And um, so where is the struggle coming from? And she said, well, I'm not as good as I should be. And I just thought that was interesting, you know, and I wasn't sure what to say initially. So I quite innocently said, well, how good should you be? And she didn't know what to say. Mm-hmm. And I, she goes, well, I don't know. I said, well, if you don't know how good you should be, how do you know you're not better than you should be? <laughs> like, um, and she said, well, I don't know that either. And I said, well, you're getting information from somewhere. I mean, you, what you've done is you've created this goal and now you've decided that you should be at this specific place. Where is, you know, where is that coming from? And she said, I, I really hadn't thought of it that way. And I said, well, let me ask you this. If look at what you can do now. And then if you could do that, if you could do that, um, six months ago when you started, how would you have felt about yourself and your skill level? And she said, oh, I would have felt I was pretty good. And I said, so it's, it's not that you're not getting better. It's that your, your definition of good is changing and your perception of how good you can be is changing. And she said, yeah, I guess that is what it is. I said, wasn't well, that always going to be the case? I said, you know, the better as an artist, the better you get, the farther you're going to see. I said, you know, you can look at it like, a V, you know, a, a V on a piece of paper, it points upward. It starts at an apex at the bottom and then it goes out farther and farther. I said, if you drew the lines to infinity, I said, and you're on this line that's right in the middle, intersect, you're coming straight up in the air. I said, the farther up that line you go, the farther out you can see. And I said, so, you know, that's a blessing. I said, I don't think you would want to hit the ceiling. So, um, and so it was just, you know, changing her perspective. And so that's why I say, you know, you can, um, you can look at this stuff and your interpretation of the experience and, you know, whether you think you should be here or there, there, you know, it's just don't judge. You know, and that's what, you know, she was doing. I, I see this over and over again, Nick. I mean, I had um, I had someone that called me and I, and she happened to be local, which never happens. And, you know, I offer a, uh, you know, people, they can, they can call me and at no cost and we'll talk for half an hour and we'll just see, you know, what we can do and if everything's a good fit and if they want to go further. And so she called, you know, she set up this appointment. I said, well, look, you're, you're local. I, why don't we just meet at like a Starbucks? Um, so we did. So when, you know, when she came in and, you know, she, her thing was that she was in her early fifties and she had been dating somebody for, um, for some time, my two years, I think. And she had broken up with him <clears throat> and, I said, you know, well, I'm not a couples counselor, so I'm not really sure I'm your guy. I said, but go ahead and, t- you know, talk. And she said, uh, well, I just feel like I should be over him more than I am. And I said, okay, that's fair enough. I said, so I have to assume that you've read the book. And she said, what book are you talking about? I said, well, you know, there's only one book. And she said, no, I, I don't. What book are you talking about? I said, well, it's the book. You, it's on relationships. You look it up. I said, it's sort of like an Excel spreadsheet. I said, you know, like you you look at the row and, and the column and then you look at how old you are, how old he is, you know, how some personality things that you check and then how long you've been dating and um, and all this stuff. And then what it does is they intersect at this place and it tells you that it should take you – you know, 12 months, four weeks, three days, eight hours, 33 seconds, and you'll be totally over them. And she said, there's no book like that. And I said, that's right, but you're acting like there is. And I said, you know, where does it say that you should be over him? What What is more? Uh, are you over him more than you were on the day you broke up with him? And she said, well, yeah, totally. I said, so what you're really looking for is 
when can you run into him in the grocery store and he has no impact on you? And she said, yeah, I guess that's it. And I said, well, so you are, you are getting over him as each day goes on. I said, I'm betting if I told you that I'm going to touch you on the head and when I touch you on the head, this magic's going to happen. And I, after that, I can tell you that in two months, three days, so many seconds, at 12 o'clock that night, you will be totally over him. I said, I'll bet you, you would just relax because you would know that, oh, well, I only got to go this much farther and then I'm going to be over him. I said, uh, I said, but that is happening. It's happening every day. Mm-hmm. You're just having these um, attachments to when this time is going to happen. So you're constantly rerunning it over in your mind. And she said, yeah, you know, you're right. I don't think I need any more counseling. <laughs> so, um, Well, yeah, I mean, it can be challenging to make peace with incompleteness or like a lack of closure. It can be, and the, the, but I think what happens is is that we judge, we always attach, with all goals that we make, um, we a- attach a time frame, you know, mm-hmm. to how long it should take to accomplish the goal, and we we recognize the the futile nature of this, um, and also how it's um, counterproductive. You know, again, a, a simple analogy is if someone says. I'm going to, I want to lose 30 pounds and I'm going to change my lifestyle. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to change my diet and I'm going to do all these things. So 30 pounds, that should take me five days. Well, obviously we know that's ridiculous, but if, if you do that and you believe that it should take five days, what's going to happen? Well, three days into it, you're going to be on a scale and you're going to be going, this isn't working. And then this whole internal dialogue thing starts, you know, I'm not good at this. You lose your confidence and all these things. You may be losing weight at a very accelerated and safe and healthy rate, but because you've chosen, you've attached yourself to this time frame that has nothing to do with what it should actually take you. Um, now you have set yourself up for a feeling of failure and you may even just quit mm-hmm. because you feel like you're so bad at it. And this is one of the, the chapters in fully engaged is, you know, um, setting goals with accurate data, because this is something we all do. We just, we set a goal and then we, in our mind, we arbitrarily set a time frame with that, with no data. And in fact, in many times we can't, we don't have access to the data when we set the goal to know how long it should take. That certainly happened to me. And I, you know, when I talk about that, when I wrote the practicing mind and I sold my businesses and uh, jumped off a cliff and I had no income coming in, I had an idea in my head. I don't know where I got it from, you know, how long it should take me to be, um, you know, making a, a, you know, a good income off of that. And I was totally wrong. You know, (laughs) I ended up, you know, 50 years old and, and working as a roadie, at two o'clock in the morning in the rain, pushing crates up in the semis because I was running out of money and I needed, in order for the practicing mind to get to where it needed to be and the dream to be realized, I had to get out there and, and bring some cash flow into the family. So, um, but I didn't anticipate that happening. I thought I had it all figured out when I started. It's uh, it's like shortcuts are short-sighted. I like the example that you use of our goals being like a rudder on a boat, you know, they provide direction versus being the dock or the destination. Goals are more of a compass. Right. And I think that, um, you know, I've um, there's been times where I've done quite a bit of sailing and own sailboats and <clears throat> sailors look at um, sailors pick a destination. So they have some place to experience sailing to. And I think it's a great metaphor, you know, like um 
you know, you go, ah, let's sail to the tiki board, you know, down the bay, you know, okay, well, what's, what's the point of that? It's just so we can sail, you know, we want to sail someplace. We want to experience the challenge of sailing. And what happens when you leave the, the marina? Well, you've, you know, you've reached your destination because you have to deal with which way is the wind blowing. It's not blowing the way I need it to blow right now. Okay, well, how can I work with that to still make my boat go in the direction that I want it to go? And sometimes you can't make the boat go in the direction you want to go. Sometimes the wind doesn't blow. Sometimes you have to tack a lot and go off the line that you really, the course that you really want to go on in order to make forward progress. And you just accept that. And it's all part of the fun of how can I make this as a this sale as efficient as a possible to reach my goal. And, and sometimes you got to start the motor and come back, you know, like, um, and, but it's just part of, it's part of the experience. Yeah. And sometimes we will sail far and wide just to get to where we are right now. That's right. That's right. Why do you want society to be fully engaged? I think that uh, I'm really concerned about, you know, where we're going, particularly in younger people and younger people are going to learn this stuff most likely from from um, older people. And if you don't know it, you can't teach it. Uh, but, you know, as I said, we are we are losing our ability to focus. We're losing our patience. Mm-hmm. We expect things to happen very quickly. I have a daughter that's a kindergarten teacher, and you know she has said that it's just like these kids expect everything instantly. They have no patience. They don't have control of their emotions. And she said we're more concerned about whether they can move ahead in math than whether they can control their emotions. And she said this is why you're you're seeing all this violence in these people because they're not in control of their emotions. They're not aware that they're of the emotions that they're. You know their brain and their their programming is um, is creating. They're not um, uh, aware of what the external things are happening, how that's changing the way that they see things, mm-hmm. and that's why being fully engaged and being in the present moment and being able to separate yourself from the reactions that your mind has to the stimulus is just so important. It's so important. It's the only way that we're really going to change the direction that we're going um, worldwide. Yeah. So first, develop the awareness, and then you can develop the control. Then you get the privilege of choice. When you have the awareness, then you have the opportunity to be the conscious choice maker. Otherwise, you're not a conscious choice maker. What is it? I think the the Sufi poet Rumi said, I use my emotions. I don't allow my emotions to use me. Um, You know, this is something. So like I said, you know, I was raised, Nick, like, well, you can't control your emotions. They just happen. I now know that that's completely false. That's completely false, and it's been proven through science and study. You know, we, we we know where emotions come from, and we do it. That does, and we're not. If we could just teach kids this right from day one, but everybody would have to be on board. We could completely transmute the way that um, people process every day and and situations during the day. Instead, we're going in the opposite direction. I see, I see so much anger in so many people. I see the programming on television is so toxic. Um, it's always based around conflict and anger and, um, we're just pumping this stuff and the visuals, you know, all this stuff is going into us all the time, unless we make a conscious decision that, you know what, I'm not going to expose myself to that because it's not healthy for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So simple, but yet so powerful. Right. And I'm not a fan of prescriptions, but I think a great place to start is just go for a walk, you know, leave your phone at home. First of all, walking is going to contribute to your overall health, but it's also going to give you that nature does something where it just it shows you what's going on upstairs. It does. And I walk. In fact, this morning, I walked three and a half miles through the woods. Uh, I do it almost every day. And 
And one of the things it does is it gives me the opportunity, if I go there and my mind's really active with thoughts, it gives me a mind to pull it back into just noticing the intelligence in a tree. Just look at the trees. They know when it's time to lose their leaves. They have, there's a consciousness there. They, you look at a, the branches coming off of these trees. It's, it, it, this is a beautiful walk through miles of forest. And you watch, you look at the branch on a tree and you see that this branch came out of the tree and then turned upward. There's a consciousness there. That tree knew it like in order to get past this other branch from the tree next to it, it had to go in this direction and then go upwards uh, to reach for the, the sunlight for photosynthesis. So it's like there's an intelligence there. There's a consciousness there. And there's so much going on around us that we just get so absorbed with um, stuff that isn't important and that we don't notice that. And so that's the value of that. It does really help us keep perspective. Uh -huh. Trees are the ultimate philosophers. They aren't forced to explain things because they embody it. Right. A couple, right. couple more questions for you, Thomas. Are you reading anything good right now? Yes, I'm reading um, <clears throat> How to Be Superhuman by uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza. Um, and it's uh, I think it's subtitled common people doing uncommon things. It's fascinating work that he does about consciousness and the internal, the, the relationship between the heart and the brain and what we, uh, all these brain scans are doing with people and when they reach altered states, what their brains are doing. And it's a lot of, I think it's really, I, I, I'm excited about where we're gonna be in another 25 years with this neuroscience that's going on and what it's showing us about how we really fit into the universe and how we really have so much more control over what comes into our life than we're, we're actually executing the control. We're just not aware that we're executing it. So we're bringing stuff into our life that we don't want, uh, whether that's bad health or bad situations. But we do have this incredible control and we need to harness that. And uh, so the book is about that. It, it, it's a fascinating read. Oh, yeah. I enjoyed that book as well. What did you learn about yourself when writing Fully Engaged? Uh, well, fully engaged when I wrote that, I was, um, you know, I was really having to recount when I when I put the practicing mind out there. Uh, I, in fact, I think I said this in the introduction. I didn't think. I thought like, you know, I said what I had to say, you know, that's it, you know, because everybody kept saying, when are you going to write another book? When are you going to write another book? And I said, well, I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> so, um, but then I found that I was being, doing all these presentations and coaching and people were asking me similar questions and asking me more. And I thought, well, there's, there's more to the story like in, that I learned during the process of writing Fully Engaged and what I've learned during the process of writing The Practicing Mind and then what i had learned since then. And so I had to recount stuff like this, the, um, everything that I went through from getting out of the piano technology business and starting a publishing company because I self-published the Practicing Mind when it originally, the first edition before it was taken over by New World Library. Um, and so I had to just how I processed all that. And I had to use everything I wrote about in the Practicing Mind to get me through all the difficulty uh, that, you know, that was part of that. So I, I learned a lot about just having to remember everything, to sit down and remember everything that had gotten me to the point where I was when I was writing fully engaged. Mm -hmm. I also remember, I also remembered how difficult it is to write a book. So if you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? Well, you know, you would think that the, the obvious answers to me that first come to mind are, you know, oh, Buddha, Gandhi, Jesus, you know, but I don't think I'm going to tell Jesus anything he doesn't already know. So uh, for me, 
the answer that I came up with is myself. If I, if, you know, I think if I, if how many people haven't thought to themselves at one time in their life, you know, you say, well, you know, what would you do if you could go back and live your life over? And they always say, well, I'd only do that if I could know what I know now. So I thought if I could go back to when, say, I was 17, 18 years old, knowing what I know now and and knowing what I know about how I was back there and how I thought and what my fears were and what my goals were and all those things, if I could go back and look at my and sit down with myself for about two hours and talk, man, would that change my life? That is so profound. What are your daily non-negotiables, things that no matter what will always be done? Well, the one thing is, I, as I said, I um, is the walk. Um, I do that because... I need, you know, my so much of my work is in front of a computer, uh, whether it's writing or producing a program, um, or it's a, a, you know, call like this, and I need to get out of the house and move around. And so I really, even in the wintertime, I bundle up and I try to get out. But I'd say the other thing that I think is imp- really important to me that I do is I sit down and I think about something I'm grateful for, and it, I don't. And I, I write it in a journal, and I don't care if it's um, the first sip of the cup of coffee in the morning uh, that just tasted so good. There's always stuff to be thankful for, and I think that the being able to be aware uh, to to raise your vibration every day and to start from that place and then to come back to that place sometimes if i start to feel negative i'll say oh, time to time to pull out my gratitude journal cuz and i got to think of something i'm grateful for uh to shift my vibration rate so that i raise it up and so i change uh this uh, the, the pattern of thought that is happening then uh because again because i'm noticing I'm noticing how I'm feeling, and I know that feeling is coming from behaviors that are being pulled off of the hard drive. And right when that's happening, I realize, you know what? I'm not in control of this right now, and I need to get control of it because I don't want to feel lousy. Mm-hmm. So I um, there's and there's always something I can be grateful for, no matter how silly it is, and no matter how many times I've expressed it. You know, maybe I I might write about the same thing every day, but it's just pulling it into the front of my consciousness and saying. You know, I am so grateful for this. And I am. I've, we have so much to be grateful for. I, you know, when I do occasionally watch some of the stuff that's going on all over the world and uh, things in like a hospital like St. Jude, you know, where there's these parents and they have my kids are grown. And I look at these parents that have a child that's four years old and they've been dying of cancer since they were two. I just can't imagine what um, the challenges in that. And I'm so uh, empathetic to people. I can just empathize to how uh, difficult and draining that would be. So, you know, my life is generally very stress-free and, uh, and I'm very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it was Emerson who said a man is what he thinks about all day. Absolutely. That's right. So tell me about the upcoming events that you have and your online courses. Well, they, uh, we have, uh, I'm going to be doing an event in the field in Philadelphia at the end of January and uh, it's called this, um, the science of mental performance, and it's going to be a one day event. There'll be a full morning session of me lecturing and presenting, you know, everything we know about how the mind works and, uh, well, I can't do everything we know about the, how the, in, in several hours, but I can give people the, um, usable information of what we know through sports psychology and peak performance and neuroscience and Eastern thought and all these things. And, how you apply that 
into every area of your life because my coaching clients are everything from uh, young people to retired CEOs and under all different circumstances, surgeons, I mean, you, you, just everybody. But what I find is that the information that I work with with people is applicable to absolutely any situation. So what I want to do is get people to where they can walk out of there and they can bring this into their family. Like, And I've had that. I've worked with people and they will say like, you know, uh, they, they would sit around the dinner table talking about the practicing mind, you know, with their kids and their wife would read the book or their husband, you know, whoever, depending on who was working with me. And it would become a family discussion. And, uh, and it's just to bring people's awareness up. So that is happening. It's, um, and you can find out about it at Tom, um, at tomsterner.com. Uh, there's a there's a link in the nav bar to that, uh, and there is a, a discounted early registration, and it is limited. I'm not I'm only going to have so many people there because I don't want an oversized um, event. And then I also am am working on an online course which uh, will be available through the site. And you really, I would tell people that you just need to sign up, uh, follow me on Facebook or. Um, you know, or or on my newsletter or something to find out about that. That'll be coming out in the first quarter of 2020, and that's going to be a culmination of again of everything you know that I've learned, and it will be a course that people can access through Teachable.com. Now, is there anywhere else you want to direct people to go if they want to connect with you? Well, they can go to you know if they go to Tom at Tom if they go to TomSterner.com or they can email me at Tom at TomSterner.com. Uh, you know, I talk to people every day. If somebody wants to talk to me about coaching, you know, they can do that. And as I said, they can go on to the coaching page, which they can get to through the website and they can, they can set up a, you know, a free half an hour, uh, conversation with me and we can just kind of discuss their situation and what they're struggling with. And then they can decide if, uh, you know, they want to get into, um, you know, something a little more committed. Very cool. All right, Thomas, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It was my pleasure, Nick. Thanks for asking me to be on the show. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shikoba.